This morning we are going to be in uh, several different places, Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, but we're going to start in the book of Ezra. So Ezra and Nehemiah together. <clears throat> we'll start in the book of Ezra, just the first couple of verses, uh, the first couple of verses there. If you need to look in your table of contents for that, no shame. That's usually not devotional reading for a lot of people, so feel free to look in there and and figure out where the book of Ezra and Nehemiah are, the books are. So uh, as I said, we're kicking off a new series. And uh, this series, unlike what we've done the past year or so, is going to be uh, going back to a book and walking through a book. But unlike what we've done in the past, uh, when we've gone through a book, these, this won't necessarily be verse by verse. And we're going to cover these books. We're going to cover almost everything in these books. Uh, but we may not read every single verse and cover every single verse in these uh, in these uh, books. And as I said, this is not going to be one book that we're going through at a time, which is typically what we would do as well. But it's going to be three, maybe even four. We may throw Haggai in there just for just for giggles. So uh, we, we've got a lot that we're going to cover, a lot we're going to be talking about, uh, and. Um, that's going to be kind of the, the base of operation, those books. So maybe you want to get familiar uh, with those. And the, the reason we're doing these books together, um, Ezra and Nehemiah actually are one book. It's just whenever the Bible was compiled and translated, uh, they got split into two. But uh, if you actually go back to the, the text, it's actually one, uh, one large book. So we'll do those together. Uh, but the others also are all talking about the same time period. They're all referencing and, and, and really telling a story of one segment of history, of the nation of Israel's history. And all of these uh, books kind of go back to that. And all of these books kind of repeat very similar themes. And so I make no apologies. I will be somewhat repetitive as we go throughout this series. I'll be repetitive because the Bible is repetitive. Uh, and as you've heard me say, repetition is the mother of all learning. So we're going we're gonna to cover all this and we're going to revisit some of these themes that, that we'll get to here over the next few weeks. Today primarily is going to be a setting of the table. Today is primarily going to be setting things up for us to knock things down later on as we go throughout the series. And I'll just be honest with you. I'll kind of peel back the curtain a little bit behind my process and choosing books and what we go through um, I really struggled with what to preach through right now. I really, really struggled with what we should uh, do. Whenever everything kind of fell apart back in March, we were in 1 John. We dropped that. We haven't gone back to it yet. Didn't feel like it was time to go back to 1 John just yet. Um, we did a series, uh, our series, Things Too Wonderful, pretty much all throughout 2020, where we were looking at the attributes of God, which is different than how we typically approach preaching and walking through uh, books. And so whenever it came time for the new year and new series, I really, really struggled. You can talk to Chris and Jordan and, and Beth Ann, talk to them trying to figure out what do we want to do? What are, what should I go through? Um, I just didn't know because everything looks so different. I didn't know what I was preparing for. I didn't know what I would be trying, who I would be trying to preach to. If I would be preaching to a camera, if I would be preaching to mainly people in the room, all of those things kind of played into my mind. But I just kind of kept coming back to uh, the Ezra-Nehemiah time frame and this, this time period. Um, I, I honestly, I can't tell you why, other than I just feel like this, the Spirit was leading me there. I couldn't, couldn't really get away from that. So I said, all right, that's what we'll do. And I just kind of settled on it and said, that's fine. That's what we'll go through. But over the last few weeks, as I've uh, been able to dive into these books and I've been able to read in these books and study a little bit more, Man, I can see so many themes that we're going to be able to pull out and talk about. So many things that God is doing that are so relevant to us today. Um, <clears throat> I can't tell you everything that we're supposed to get out of these books just yet, but I can tell you there is much for us to learn, and I think you guys are going to be blessed uh, as we go through this. And so um, today, as we, as we get started, as, as much as any other sermon in the series, like I said, is going to be a lot of... Uh, background, a lot of history, a, a lot of dates, a lot of scripture, uh, going to be throwing out a lot of different kind of references to different things from all over the Bible. Um, it's going to be a little bit of a different sermon for us, but with that said, let's just kind of dip our toe in the water here. We're going to read the first couple 
uh, really the first verse in the book of Ezra. So let's just read that together. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, what I've said so far is a really big deal. You just don't know it yet. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and he also put it in writing. We'll look at what that proclamation is here in a few minutes. Um, we'll stop right here just with one verse in. I'm going to begin this series, and I'm going to operate under uh, four assumptions as we start this, all right? So these are the four assumptions I'm going to operate under as we go through this. One, most of you do not know your, the history of ancient Israel all that well. Maybe some of you guys are scholars. Maybe some of you have uh, dove into these Old Testament texts, and you know well the, 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 the timeline of Israel's history. But my guess is most of you do not know the history of ancient Israel all that well. The second assumption is that you did not come in here this morning thinking, I really hope the pastor talks about the history of ancient Israel this morning because that'll be super fun. I'm guessing that you probably didn't think that as you were walking in this morning and that really wasn't on your, uh, your text you were hoping for us to, to, to read and talk about. Uh, the third assumption is that Part of the reason you weren't really looking for me to talk about the history of ancient Israel is because you don't really think the history of, of ancient Israel is all that relevant to you today here in Jefferson City, uh, Tennessee in 2021. So that's three assumptions. The fourth assumption is that I believe you're completely wrong about number three. It is extremely relevant. And I've got to convince you over the course of the next few months that not only is it relevant, it is very important that we know these things because God intends for us to know him better as we learn this history and how God worked in history and in this time period of Israel and the Jews' life. So that's my assumptions as we begin, and, and I'm, gonna, I'm going to just uh, move with that, that you probably didn't plan on it this morning, don't see the relevance of it, don't know it all that well. But I want to convince you that, that all of those, um, it would be important for us to know these things. And so these books are going to tell us a history that we need to know if, if, if it's going to make any sense to us what's happening in the Old Testament. Really in the entire storyline of scripture at all. You, you see, the thing is, we like to pull out verses and talk about verses and talk about how those verses apply. But every verse in the Bible has a context. Every book written has a context. And that context has a larger context. And a big part of that is going to be how we got there. Especially when you talk about the New Testament, so much of the New Testament will open up to you if you understand the history of the Old Testament. And so what I want to do is I want to be able to see what is going on here. A fundamental assumption of the Old Testament is that history is not merely a sequence of events, but divinely inspired and dictated events that are carried out by God. I'm going to say that again. A fundamental assumption of the Old Testament is that history is not just a sequence of events that occurred, but it is a divinely inspired and dictated sequence of events that are carried out by individuals that are both worshipers of God and by those that hate him. We saw this in the book of Exodus, right? Moses and Pharaoh. Not just historical events, are, it's the historical events are orchestrated by God, both by the ones done by Moses and by Pharaoh. God is sovereign over all of it, and that's going to be true of the whole Old Testament. So when the book of Ezra begins, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that is meant to do a few things for us. It's meant to kind of, to kind of draw our eye and, and establish a scene for us. It's not meant to simply uh, inform. It's, it, it is meant to inform, but it's meant to do more than that. It's meant to shock us just a little bit. It's meant to kind of jolt us to like, oh, wow, that's a, that's a big statement that is made right here. And here's why it should shock us. If you read the book of Chronicles, which kind of leads up to this, if you read the book of Chronicles, what you see is that God's people mark their time not so much by years or decades that pass. Like we talk about 
whoa, man, the 60s were a crazy decade. Whoa, man, uh, you know, you look back at the, the, the roaring 20s or let's look at the, the 90s. We talk about decades to kind of mark time. The way that they would have marked time is by who was in charge, by the king. So they wouldn't talk so much about decades. They would talk about uh, the, the, the king, like King of Cyrus here. So the way we would say, instead of saying the 80s, we would say the, the time of Reagan's presidency. That's how we would mark the time. That's how they mark the time. And when you go throughout the book of, the book of Chronicles, they mark it by king after king after king. In the year that this king was over Israel, in the year that this king was over Judah, in the year that this king was that kind of thing. That's how they talk about it. But every time that they mark time, they mark it by the king of Israel. However, when we get here in Ezra, they are marking the time, but it is not by a Jewish king. It is now being marked by a Persian king. But the Persian king is not one that we should have been expecting if we don't know the larger story. You would expect the people of Israel to mark the time by their leaders. So what we need to figure out is the larger story. Why does Ezra talk about Cyrus? Why is he not talking about some king of the Jews here? Why is he not talking about some king over uh, Judah or Israel? And so these next few minutes, I'm going to give you a tour of the history of Israel. And I'm going to go as fast as I can, but they're important because they will set the scene and the context for the next few weeks. So once Israel leaves Egypt and eventually takes the land that God had promised them, uh, this is going to be Joshua and uh, a lot of the events that are in Joshua, they, they set up shop and they begin to operate. They begin to uh, kind of establish themselves in the land that God had promised. And this is where you start to get the kings of Israel. You get Saul and David and then Solomon. And then Rehoboam comes after that. But during the reign of Rehoboam, something big happens. It moves from being the united uh, kingdom of Israel to two separate kingdoms. So you have the kingdom of Israel, which is the northern kingdom. And then you have two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, that is the southern kingdom. This is called the kingdom of Judah. So Israel uh, effectively splits into two different kingdoms. And you will have kings in the north and you will have kings in uh, the south. And so in the south, this is where Jerusalem is. Uh, this is going to be where, uh, where we're going to follow a lot. And in the north, what you see happen is that uh, basically there will be no good kings in the north. There's some that are kind of like iffy, but for the most part, the northern kingdom never gets a good king that's truly seeking after God. The southern kingdom, which contains Jerusalem and even more important, Solomon's temple, the southern kingdom uh, will more or less kind of alternate between good kings and bad kings, good kings and bad kings. This is kind of how their pattern goes throughout the whole thing. So, uh, but with both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, what you're going to see is that they have a really big problem with something called syncretism. Now, it may not be a word you're familiar with, but it's one that you need to know. They're going to have a problem with syncretism. Uh, and we're going to talk about it a lot because what that really means is that basically they would adopt the practices of other religions, other gods, other peoples, and kind of adopt that into their own practice. So think of syncretism like syncing up, like these two different religions would kind of sync up and they would, they would pull in other people's traditions and they would do those things. So this is a problem all throughout the Old Testament. This is what Every prophet, and when you read the major and the minor prophets, this is part of what every one of them is going to convey to the people of Israel and the people of Judah, that they have messed up, and they have messed up big time because they have become uh, syncretized with the, the peoples around them. Instead of truly worshiping God and Him alone, first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me, they have brought in other gods and they have worshiped them too going to be a huge problem. It's one that we will address a lot as we go throughout Ezra and Nehemiah uh, as well. So the prophets predict that if Israel does not return to God and God alone, kind of eliminate the syncretism, purge, from, purge the evil from uh, among them and rid themselves of the influence of these other religions, then they are going to find that, that their kingdoms will fail and God will remove his protection and his hand that has guided them so far, over and over, the prophets rail on this, and they talk about how this is going to happen. 
And then it does. First, this happens with the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom in 722 uh, is, this is 722 BC, they are brutally overtaken by the Assyrians. Now, the southern kingdom does not fall. It fights back against the Assyrians. But the northern kingdom falls. And the people of the northern kingdom are, are, are they, they basically completely wiped out. They're either killed or they're taken away by the Assyrians. And to this day, nobody really knows what happened to all of those people. They more or less just disappeared, and you cannot find them uh, today. They took their people, and they were never heard from again. And then after this time, other prophets began to warn the southern kingdom and say, if you don't clean up your act, if you don't quit worshiping these other gods, this too is going to happen to you. So if you want to turn to the book of Jeremiah, we're going to read a couple of passages in the book of Jeremiah where you can hear the prophets kind of issuing this warning to the southern kingdom. Jeremiah chapter 25. Jeremiah chapter 25 in verse 8. Jeremiah is writing, and this is what he says. This is what he says. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all tribes of the north, declares the Lord. And for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, that's a pretty interesting phrase there, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish them from the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So that's not playing around. Jeremiah is given the warning saying, if you don't clean up your act, what you saw happen to the, the northern kingdom is about to happen to you, southern kingdom. There will be no marriages. There will be no gladness. There will be no lights in the, in the lamp. There will be no cities. There will be none of this. It will all be laid to waste. And then in verse, chapter 29, if you want to go forward just a couple of chapters, listen to what Jeremiah says here. Jeremiah 29, verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So he's saying, this is what he's going to say. He's, he's speaking as if it has already happened. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. What's going on here? What Jeremiah is telling the people of Judah is, he's saying, expect to be taken away. Expect to be pulled from your homes and you will go into exile. Expect it will be miserable. Expect you will wish you were at home. Expect that you will long for the place that you called home. You will long for the temple. You will long for these things, but they will be no more. And you will pray to be pulled up out of the pit. And this is how God's going to answer you. No. I'm not going to pull you up out of the pit. In fact, for a couple of generations, you're going to go wherever the Babylonian sends you. And the only way for you to succeed, the only way for you to find joy, the only way for you to flourish as a people is you're going to have to seek out the good of the city that I put you in, the Babylonian city that I put you in. The only way that you are going to be able to uh, grow and to find joy and happiness is that you are going to have to seek out the joy of the city of your enemies. You're going to have to put roots down. You're going to have to see people get married. You're going to have to have kids. You're going to have to do all that. You're going to have to do it a long, long way from Jerusalem. This is not what captives would have had in mind as a rescue plan. This is not what they would have wanted at all. And what Jeremiah prophesies comes to pass completely. The Assyrians that had conquered the northern kingdom are then conquered by the Babylonians and King Nebuchadnezzar. 
And then Nebuchadnezzar comes after the southern kingdom, and he takes them down, destroys the temple, lays waste to their cities, spends another decade after he's taken all the, the, the people of the southern kingdom away to the Babylonian cities, he spends another decade doing nothing but just ransacking and demolishing cities, one after the other. Absolutely destroys the southern kingdom. They're taken away. They're into exile. They basically become slaves of the Babylonian people. The most promising ones are taken to the royal court and they are groomed for service. You guys know this story. This is Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or as you know them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is what's going on during this time. Nebuchadnezzar has brought these people out. And then he goes and lays waste to everything especially the temple. So then, at that point, the people of Israel have no choice. They hear Jeremiah's words, and they say, well, this is what we have to do now. We have to put our roots down in this place that is not our home. We have to do this very, very hard thing. And then God will begin to change things. And they have to do this for 70 years. Seeking the good of the city, putting roots down in a foreign land, building a life. And then if you keep reading in Jeremiah chapter 29, you'll come to some more familiar verses that you might know a little bit better. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Puts the coffee mug in a totally different context there. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and then I will hear you, and you will seek me and find me. And when you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and then I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So we come back to this verse a lot. It's Jeremiah 29, 11. That promise of, for I know the plans I have for you, not to, pros to prosper you and not to harm you, that follows 70 years of exile. So just be careful if that's your verse for the year, okay? Like, it follows a really rough stretch for the people of Israel. And God says, I'll come back for you after 70 years. I won't forget you. Now, 70 years is long for a lifetime. If you and I are talking about 70 years, 70 years I won't, from now, I won't be here. It's long for a lifetime. But in the span of global history, it's really a pretty short period of time that they are in exile. But in that time, the Babylonians themselves are then defeated by the Persians. So the Assyrians wipe out the northern kingdom, then the Babylonians come and wipe out the Assyrians, and then the Persians come and they wipe out the Babylonians, just one after the other, just boom, 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 these massive empires fighting with one another and wiping the other one out. And that's where we pick up the story in Ezra chapter 1, in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia. So now you have the context for the book of Ezra. And what we're going to see is, here's what happens at the end of that 70 years where God said, I will hear you when you call out to me, and I will gather my people from all the nations, and you will return to your home. That's what the next three months are going to be for us. What's it like when his people go back home? So Jeremiah had predicted the fall and then the return of the people of the nation of Judah. So had Isaiah. Isaiah had even gotten the king's name right. This is what I read earlier. I'm going to read it again. Same thing I read just a little bit earlier today. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretch out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built. Now that's a big deal because 
he's saying those cities that were laid to waste by the Babylonians, they shall be built. They it shall be inhabited again. It's desolate. It's empty. But it will not be a ghost town for long. I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. And then verse 28. Who says of Cyrus, he calls him out by name. Cyrus doesn't exist whenever Isaiah is writing this. But he calls out Cyrus by name. And he says, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill my purpose. So Nebuchadnezzar, God says, is my servant. Cyrus says, he is my, says, or God says that Cyrus is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. So Isaiah and Jeremiah don't have great news for the people of Israel. But they say, after all of this mess you go through, God will not forget about you. And one of these days, a king named Cyrus will rule over you. And when he does, that's when God is going to do some things. And then in Ezra 1, in the first year of King Cyrus's reign, that's wild to me. I just think that is absolutely wild. The Bible is a book about history that is telling us a story if we will listen, if we have the ears to hear it. It's, a, it's telling a story about a God that is at work on a grand, epic scale. And a God that is at work in the, the minutiae of the everyday of his people. It's telling the story of a God that has, has not and will not forget his people. But also the story of a God that will not turn a blind eye to the sin of his people. It's a story about nations and kings and prophets, and it's a story about me and you and generations of people that God has remembered. It's a story about generations of people, people just like me and you, that have to learn how to trust God when it seems like he has disappeared, that have to learn how to trust God in the midst of the hardest thing they would ever know in their lives, that have to learn how to trust God when it makes absolutely no sense to trust God in the midst of pain and suffering and frustration and confusion and punishment. They trust God. So that's what we'll be talking about over the next few months. A story about what happens when God brings these people back from exile to their home. What you would think, I mean, when you read that so far, right, you're thinking like, okay, so God really punishes them. This is a bad deal for them. They got to deal with this for 70 years. But then God relents and things get better. What, what triumphant return that must have been after 70 years what jubilation they must have had what exuberant joyful worshipful return must have happened but what you're going to see is that it turns into a difficult frustrating incomplete story of return one mixed with some amazing results one mixed and punctuated by some beautiful stories of what god can do through for the most part, what a pretty ordinary people. So let's read just a little bit more and read the decree that Cyrus issues here in the beginning of the book of Ezra. Verse 2. Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. All the kingdoms of the earth. Now listen, Assyria was the most powerful country or the most powerful empire the world had seen up until that point. And then the Babylonians took them over. And guess what? The Babylonians were the most powerful empire the world had ever seen. And now you have the Persians. And they are the most powerful empire the world has ever seen. Just right in sequence. He says, God has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his, all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. 
And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. I just think this is wild. You've got a totally secular king who, who likely knew nothing of who Yahweh was, who knew nothing of who God was until he conquered the Babylonians and happened to find these people amongst the Babylonians and said, hey, wait a minute, what, who, who is your God? What's going to happen? Oh, wait, there's a, there's a prophecy about me? Tell me more. And that's when he learns about this. And then he says, now, I like this idea of building a temple. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to, here's this decree. I'm going to give you guys some money. And I'm going to say, anybody that wants to go back to Jerusalem and build this temple, you're free to go. You guys go for it. You see, Cyrus and the Persians looked at, uh, at conquering a people a little bit differently. The Babylonians just wanted to wipe them out. Lay waste to their cities, take whatever they can, loot it, and then be done with it. Kill the people if they need to kill the people, enslave the people if you want to enslave the people, whatever, just domineer and rule them. They wanted to wipe out their people, their cities, their way of life, their religion. They wanted to be as if they never existed on the earth in the first place. But the Persians thought that was totally unnecessary and a great big waste of resources. The Persians would say this, and this is, this is not just true of the Jewish people, this is true of uh, all the people that they conquered. The Persians instead would say, you know what? Y'all want to do your thing, that is totally fine by us. Y'all go do your thing. Just so long as you pay a little homage to us, that is fine. Y'all go do your thing. An extra God in our pantheon of, pantheon of gods will only help us. That will only make things better for us. What's it going to hurt to throw Yahweh in there with the rest of our gods? That is fine. Y'all go back. Y'all build. Welcome to the team. You guys are on our team. After all, uh, we would rather have a wealthy tax base instead of a poor tax base. So go make money. We will take your money when we tax you. That's how this is going to go. You guys are free uh, to go. So Cyrus opens the door for their people to leave their Babylonian exile and return home. And then we'll see what happens next week as Cyrus does this and, uh, and the people start to, to head back. But this story uh, of this return is one that God, I'm telling you, will use to write so many things, so many parts of his truth on our life. And I cannot wait to be able to get into some of this with you. But for today, I just want to draw out a couple of, of, of observations that this little jaunt through the history of Israel can, uh, can do for us. All right, I just want to pull out a couple of things that we can learn from this little uh, quick 20-minute tour of the history of Israel. First, God is sovereign. Now, I could make this point every week. This could be just like point one application of every sermon that I preach, I think. God is sovereign. I, I make it all uh, the time, but it's just too critical to pass by on this one. God is fully in control of this. God is working it all to his glory, all of it, everything, all of history. It is all marching to one place, to his throne, every single bit of it. Just think about two of the things that we read today that I, that I kind of highlighted. Jeremiah said that God, that, that God would use Nebuchadnezzar, his servant. Nebuchadnezzar was about as far from a worshiper of God as you can get. He didn't know Yahweh at all. And he, he wouldn't really even hear of Yahweh until he sees a fourth walking in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's when he learns, well, wait a minute. Who is this God? I'm interested now. This was pretty cool. And that's when he finds, about, finds out about who Yahweh is. And yet God takes this heathen king who knows nothing about who he is, and he says, you know what? You're my servant. You're going to do my will. And then he takes Cyrus, who's never heard of Yahweh, and he says, you're not just going to do my will and be my servant. You will be the shepherd of my people. Now, this is not quite the same type of language that's used of David whenever David uh, is described this way. It's a little bit different in the way that it is said here, but that's still a pretty powerful endorsement of this, this king. And he says, this is how I will use you. And the, the inference and the metaphor that we're meant to draw out is that he will lead God's people. This totally secular, totally, just completely antithetical to who God is. God will use him in that way. 
And God can do that because God is fully in control of these things. Each of these nations. The second thing that we can draw from what we've looked at today is that God's will is more about the story he's telling than the one that we want written. God's will is more about the story he's telling than the one that we want written. Growing up in a a 90s youth group, a lot was made about being in the center of God's will. You guys heard that phrase before? Like, what's it mean to be in the center of God's will? I just want to be in the center of God's will. I'm just praying that, that whenever I decide on what college I want to go to or, or, or what job I want to get whenever I get out of high school or where I want to live or who I want to marry, I just want to make sure that I'm in the center of God's will. And that was what drove probably 85% of my prayer life whenever I was in high school. Much hand-wringing was done trying to figure out if I was right in the center or kind of off-center. Like, I'm on, the, I'm on the target, but I'm not in the bullseye. So what do I got to do to get to the bullseye? And that, that's, that was a lot of what consumed me for a long time. And usually the way that this was taught was this kind of soft pro- prosperity gospel that if we could do just exactly what God wants us to do and we could be right in the center of his will, then there would be this inherent blessing and protection and happy life that came with it. No one ever told me that God's will might mean exile in the city of my enemies that I don't want to be in, in captivity to a nation that hates me, and forcing me to help that nation to prosper. That's what it looked like for the people of Judah. That's, what it, that's the way it was described by Jeremiah. No one ever told me that being in God's will might just hurt a lot. What I was told is that if you were in God's will, you would be spared all of that. But God's will was being accomplished, even as the temple was being destroyed. It's a good lesson for us to learn. It's also a good reminder to us that the hurt is never the goal. The pain is never the end. Just because it hurts doesn't mean that the hurt was the goal. It doesn't mean that the pain was the end. This is so often the view that we have of God's punishment and God's correction. That that when he offers correction, whenever he offers punishment, that the whole point is just to make us suffer. The whole point is just to cause us pain. But what we can hold on to is that even in the darkest moments, even in the, the, the days filled with the most suffering. that there is a greater end that God is pursuing. And if we are called according to his purpose, as Romans 8 tells us, it is for our good. You have to be able to hold on to that in your darkest days. To know that the, the pain doesn't end in the pain. It is a pathway to something else. Something better. In the end, finding, knowing, and doing God's will is less about what God has for you to do and more about what he intends for you to be. Let me say that again. In the end, finding, knowing, and doing God's will is less about what God has for you to do and more about what he intends for you to be. So we can stop asking the question, God, what is your will for my life? And start asking the question, God, what kind of person do you want me to be for the story that you are telling? And when we do that, then we will know God's will for our life. What you need to do at that point will flow from that question. And the final thing for us to take away uh, this morning for us is to make sure that you've got your kingdoms straight. Make sure that you've got your kingdoms straight. I want to take just a couple of minutes to reflect a little bit about what we saw in our country here this week on Wednesday. But really, if we're honest, it wasn't Wednesday. It was this last year. It was the last four years. It was building for decades. When you look at this tour of history that we took today, it can be easy to, to, 
kind of missed something here. First, it was the Assyrians that did the conquering, but they were conquered by the Babylonians. Then it was the Babylonians that did the conquering, but they were conquered by the Persians, which were then conquered by the Greeks, which were then conquered by the Romans, and then Rome falls, and it just history marches on. Each of these, these kingdoms were the greatest, each of these empires were the greatest the world had ever seen up until that point. Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, Romans, the world had never seen anything like it. They had no rivals. They took what they wanted when they wanted it. They could not be stopped until they were. Every one of them. And we still read about the history of these people. We still know about the history of some of these people. But today, we will read about the history of the Jewish, Jewish people and what the lessons of their lives and their histories teach us about our own lives. And why will we do that? Because God is writing that story. Not human authors. And ultimately, because God is writing a story that is about another kingdom altogether. One that Jesus told us was not even of this world. Friends, what we witnessed in Washington this week was the culmination of a people that has been misled, radicalized, and used by politicians for their purposes. We saw a people that saw in a political candidate not someone that can enact policies that they agreed with, that could reflect Christian beliefs, but someone that they could see as their Messiah-like figure to deliver them. And what we have seen in our country on both sides here is that our country so many in our country will leverage everything for their political candidates because they are convinced the political candidates are the ones that can deliver them. And they are convinced that this world is our home. Friends, the Assyrians fell, the Babylonians fell, the Persians fell. And someday too, if Jesus tarries, America will fall. And I don't say that lightly, and I don't say that as any kind of like, I, my prayer is that that is, Long, long, long way away. But you can't study history and not know this to be true. America is not forever. It's not. Nothing in this world is. It's not forever. I pray that it is in the distant future, but I'll be honest with you. If we can't figure out how to talk to each other in this country, if we can't figure out how to have a conversation and work through some things with each other, it won't be as far in the future as we hope it is. It'll be far sooner than any of us would ever dream. I, just, I want to be clear. I think you can be a Christian and be a patriot. I'm not... I'm not knocking having pride in this country. I, I think I can live with those two things in, in tension together. I love this country. I think America is an exceptional nation, not just in our current political climate, but in the history of the world. I think America is a, an exceptional nation to history, but it is not the kingdom of God, and we cannot mistake that. The promises of Scripture are not for America. They are for the kingdom of God and for God's people. As Christians, we must be the ones leading the charge that says this nation does not hold our ultimate allegiance. That our allegiance is to the kingdom of God. Can you imagine if a watching world had seen that testimony come forward over the course of the last four or five years that we owe no allegiance to a political candidate we owe no allegiance to a president we owe no allegiance fully to this country but our allegiance is fully to the kingdom of god can you imagine how different it would be to have a conversation with your non-christian neighbor after that 
Can you imagine how different it would be to be able to say that? Because right now when you talk to your non-Christian neighbor, what they're going to say is, wait a minute, those people had flags that said Jesus and Trump 2020. As best I can tell, I can't distinguish the two, Christians and Republicans and whatever else happened. Now, we can talk about nuance about that all day long, and we can say all kinds of different things about that. But right now, what it looks like is that Republicans or that, that Christians are, will bow to any political candidate, that Christians will bow to any political party, and they will leverage everything for the kingdom of this world. And I lament over that. I weep over that. There is a way to vote for a candidate. There is a way to support a candidate or a political party. There is a way to do that. And I just want to be clear. I know we have people in here that have voted both sides of this. So I'm just, I'm not. My concern is not so much over who's winning and who's not. My concern is where our allegiance lies. And right now, for all intents and purposes, everything that the world can see is that Christians' allegiance is to the kingdoms of this world. That the, the Christians want the exact same thing that non-Christians want. Power, political influence, money, control. I lament that non-Christians see what has been happening at these marches and at these different things and they think it is primarily the work. This is what Christians do. What happened Wednesday was not Christian. Make no mistake about it. That was not Christian. That was an allegiance to the wrong kingdom. We cannot confuse our task here on earth we are ambassadors of another kingdom long before we are citizens of this one. We must keep our minds focused on the greater of those two realities. And we cannot be distracted from that task. This goes well beyond politics, too. This comes back to how we live our lives. This comes back to how we have conversations with our neighbors. This comes back to how we parent our kids. This comes back to how we care for the, the elderly and the dying. This comes back to how we care for the unborn. This comes back to how we, how, how we go to work on Mondays. What kingdom are you living for? I, let, let, me, let me just ask this question. Your prayers over the course of the last six months, have they been more focused on this kingdom, this, this country, this world, the things of this world? Or have they been more about the kingdom, God's kingdom, an eternal kingdom? Just, what prayers have you been asking? What have you been asking God to do? Has it been focused more on this kingdom or on a greater kingdom? How have you spent your time? How have you leveraged your time? I'm not saying you can't pray about this world. I hope you do. You should pray for political leaders. You should pray for your daily bread. But how many minutes of your day do you spend focused on, worrying about, concentrating on, praying for things that will pass away with this world? And how much time do you spend focused on things that will last for eternity? That will tell you very quickly where your allegiance lies. Jesus said as much, Matthew chapter 6, 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust and political parties destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves and political parties do not break in and steal. It's a little edit there, but it's pretty close. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is my heart as a pastor. You want to have a cup of coffee and you want to talk about the nuance of how complicated politics are for Christians right now? I would love to. But my heart as a pastor is that our allegiance be in the right place. 
and that we pursue our neighbors, we pursue our friends, we pursue our children, we pursue uh, everything with that in mind, that the kingdom of God is at hand, and that we are ambassadors of that kingdom. And God, help me if people see me as an ambassador of a different kingdom or a citizen of a different nation before they see me as an ambassador of his. And that goes for all of us. The kingdom of God is too great, it's too precious, and the work of Jesus is too powerful to bow our knee to any political party, any political candidate, or any nation. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning we confess that you are sovereign over all of this, even the chaos that we have seen, even the chaos of the history of ancient Israel, you are sovereign over all of it. We cannot comprehend the level of your power. We cannot understand the work of your hands. We cannot even begin to, to, to walk into a place where we can, we can see what it is that you are fully doing. But we know that we can look on the testimony of history. We can look on the testimony of Jesus Christ. We can look on his 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 murdered body on the cross and his risen body out of the tomb and we can know that we can trust you with all of it. Father, where we have made our allegiance to something that will pass away, we repent. Father, where we have we have made our allegiance to the things of this world, Father, open our eyes that we would see it. Change our hearts that we would give it our worship no longer. And may we be consumed, consumed with your glory and your kingdom. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.